Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We come this morning to the end of our series of sermons that focused on the mysteries of the kingdom. In this chapter here, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks primarily in parables. And he speaks both publicly and privately. Um, And these parables, they explain various aspects of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he explained to his disciples that basically he has a plan, that God has a plan, and he is unfolding his plan as Jesus is making his way to the cross. Now, what are these mysteries? What are these secrets here? Well, he basically says in the first parable that not everyone will respond positively to his message. Not everyone will respond and receive the messenger. And then he goes on to say that both good and bad will coexist for a time, and yet the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom will continue to spread, will continue to influence others because he has special people for whom he is going to lay down his life. And in due time, as we come to parable seven and eight, God will call everyone to give an account before him. And then the righteous, this chapter tells us, will shine like the stars and the wicked will be thrown into a furnace of fire. So those who believe in Christ are blessed. And so that is basically Matthew chapter 13 in a nutshell. Now, I want to address this morning's sermon to a specific audience, which uh, seems to me to include most of us in this room. You know, we made a change with our live group this summer, where we kind of laid uh, down our regular format, where we discuss Sunday sermons, and uh, we basically acquired a theme uh, that we titled the Summer of Testimonies. And so every time we get together, we fellowship, and then two to three people they share their testimonies of how they came to know the Lord. And it's been really an edifying experience so far, but one common thread that emerged as many of us, right, shared our testimonies is that we have a very similar background. We have very similar background. In other words, it kind of goes something like this. You know, parents went to church, and I was practically delivered in the back of the sanctuary. Like, I knew the Lord since I could remember. Like, I grew up in a Christian home. And so this sermon here is for people like this. It's for people like me, who have been familiar with Jesus Christ most of our lives. We read our Bibles, we prayed together with our parents, we went to church, we went to Sunday school, we visited, and we're very engaged in a youth group, and then uh, young adults ministry and other Bible studies. And we practically spent every weeknight doing something at church. Church was just a regular part of our life. And many of you, many of you have the same exact experience. And there's a good chance that you have been around Jesus for a very long time, even if you weren't born in a Christian family. It's hard not to hear about Jesus Christ growing up here. Now, uh, granted, some of you haven't but most of us have. Now, is there a danger 
of being too familiar with Jesus so that you no longer take him seriously or that he, Jesus, becomes boring to you? Is there a danger of being in a Christian family or a church, having all the facts about Jesus, yet not being transformed by him through faith? Certainly, many of you know that some of the most anti-Christian voices today grew up in the church and have since left the church behind. If you have been with us through our study of Matthew, you've probably noticed that many of the people who had the hardest time accepting and believing the message of Christ were the people who spent most time around him. Think about this. Gentiles, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, they are coming to Jesus being far off, but they're coming and they're rejoicing to know this Lord, and yet... The people who grew up with him, his family, his brothers, his mother, all the religious leaders, those who know him the best are the most skeptical of him. And this is what we find here at the end of Matthew chapter 13. And so this is the issue that I want us to consider this morning. I want us to read here, Matthew 13. We'll begin with verse 53. We'll make a few introductory remarks, and then we will look at this passage. Join with me. Please look at verse 53 of Matthew 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. As we look at these verses here. I just want us to kind of reset the context so we know where we're at because this is a very transitional point here in Matthew. Where are we here geographically? And if you can flash the map on the screen, I'll just kind of make a few observations here and we'll move forward. Matthew's focus so far, there you go. Matthew's focus so far has been Um, on Jesus's ministry in Galilee, in Galilee. If you look at Matthew 4.12, turn there with me just for a brief moment, Matthew 4.12. We see here that uh, Matthew writes, and when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. He goes into Galilee and he spends most of his time there in Galilee. Chapters 5 through 13 are basically around the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, as you see here on this map. The There, in verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. The there here, right, is the area of Capernaum. 
is this city, the city in which most of his miracles were performed. The place where people enjoyed the show but refused to believe in Christ and they were then in chapter 11, Christ pronounced a judgment against them. People in Capernaum proved to be those with a compacted and circumstantial hearts as as Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. Some heard the message and immediately rejected it. Others heard, but Savior's words were choked out by other concerns. And so after speaking with his disciples here in private, remember they're in the house, second portion of Matthew chapter 13, he is now in the house, probably Peter's house. Jesus now leaves Capernaum And Matthew tells us that he goes to his hometown here in verse 53, or in verse 54. He goes to his hometown. Now, he doesn't tell us the name of the town, but we know from Luke 4, 16, that it's Nazareth. Nazareth is a village Jesus had been brought in, brought up in. He was born in Bethlehem, but remember, he moved then to Nazareth. And Nazareth is about 20 to 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, as you see here on this map. It's a very tiny city, tiny town. And get this, that most of the commentators and historians, they estimate that Nazareth was made up of 500 people. That's it. 500 people. I mean, it's a really small town. Everybody is going to know something about everybody in that town. So, This here is Jesus' homecoming. And if anyone would receive Jesus joyfully, it would be his hometown, right? He knew them the best. They knew him the best. They had seen Jesus up close and personal for almost 30 years. He grew up in that town. Surely this was going to be a fine homecoming. Or so we think. And so as we look at this passage here, I want us to just center on focus on this one truth, that faith in Christ, not familiarity with him, allows you to experience his blessing. Faith in Christ, not familiarity with him, allows you to experience his kingdom blessing. Friends, there is a grave danger of being too familiar with Jesus without saving faith. Too familiar with Jesus. And so here in this story, we have sort of three movements. We have the reaction, and then we have the reason for the reaction, and then the result. Reaction, reason, and then the result. And what each one reveals about faith and unbelief. So I want us to look first at the reaction. The reaction that Jesus got from his hometown, which revealed this truth, that being amazed by Jesus does not imply faith in him. Their reaction reveals that being amazed by Jesus does not imply faith in him. In verse 54, and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. Upon his return, Jesus does what he does best. He teaches and he preaches, right? Preachers preach. That's what they do. They come out and they speak God's word. Where? In their synagogue. Now, this is a small town. 500 people. They probably had one, two, I don't know, maybe a a few synagogues, but he goes into one of them, and in their synagogue is where the word of God usually is preached, where they open up scrolls, and when they read the word, and usually rabbis show up, 
And they open up God's word, they read, then they sit people down, and then they give interpretation for that particular passage. And so that's what Jesus does. And consider their reaction. They are amazed. They are astonished. So that they were, verse 54, astonished. They are just mesmerized by what what they hear that is coming directly from Jesus. But not only what is coming directly from his word, but also about what they hear from just surrounding areas, what they hear, the reports that they gather from Capernaum and, and from the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They marvel at his wisdom here and these miraculous powers. The, this wisdom here, it's a general word, but here in this context, it refers to someone's ability to, to interpret and to apply Hebrew passages and to explain the meaning of the word of God. And so no doubt Jesus came in, he read from scripture and then gave interpretation and everyone's mouth drops open and they're like, where did he get all these things? Uh, Jesus did the same thing that Luke records in Luke chapter four, uh, perhaps in the very same synagogue on the way to Galilee about a year before. And so now he's coming back to Nazareth and is doing the same thing. And we're not told here that Jesus performed miracles while teaching. In fact, verse 58 says the opposite, that he did not perform any miracles. So their amazement of his miraculous powers, they stem from the reports. But their reaction, friends, is not an amazement of faith. They are not amazed as to believe Their astonishment doesn't drive them to learn more about Jesus, to exercise faith in him. They stand in awe of, they do not stand in awe of Christ. They are skeptical of the very words that they are hearing. They don't believe what is obvious. They, in fact, begin to question They question his authority. They question his origin. Where did he learn these things? Where did he get these powers? From where, literally? Where did this man get wisdom? In the original, from where? What is the origin? They ask twice. Certainly, they cannot deny the obvious. They don't deny that Jesus had wisdom and supernatural powers, but they question the source. Who gave him these things? Does that remind you of of anyone else here that we have looked at already in Matthew? Remember in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, as the crowds are wondering again, kind of doing the same thing that his hometown is doing right now. They're amazed and they're asking, is this the the son? Is this the one that, that we're anticipating and waiting? And the Pharisees show up and they say, no, because this one is performing miracles by the power of Satan they conclude that his power is not from God, but from Satan in chapter 12, verse 24. Friends, here's the sort of a a quick summary. Just because you get amazed at the word, just because you get amazed at the preaching of the word of God doesn't mean that you have faith. Amazement is not a fruit of faith. There could be all sorts of reasons why you can be amazed amazed at the reading, amazed at the preaching, amazed at the hearing of, uh, of what is being preached. And we must always ask why. Why? 
why did this astonish me? Why did this amaze me? Or, or what is it that amazes me about this person or, or this particular verse or this particular truth? Do I just feel good about it? Or it amazes me because I don't agree with it. We see here in their reaction, first of all, that they are amazed by Jesus. But simple amazement does not imply faith, as we will see here in just a minute. Now, why did they respond with faithless amazement? We need to dig deeper and and find out, and Matthew tells us. The reason is because of their shallow familiarity with him, with Jesus. They think, friends, that they know Jesus. They think they know him better than anyone else. And so hearing, they are unable to reconcile their shallow knowledge of Jesus with what they're hearing from him. And so we come to the second point, the reason, the reason. Why were they amazed? And the reason here, it reveals to us another lesson that being too familiar with Jesus often hinders faith in him. Being too familiar with Jesus often hinders faith in him. Think about this. Why do they bring up his family in verse 55? They are amazed and they're asking, where did he get all these things? And then in verse 55, they give reasons. They start, you know, it's almost like Matthew um, gives us a little glimpse into their minds, how their wheels are spinning. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers and James and Joseph and and Simon and Judas and his sisters? are, Are they not with us? Why do they bring up his family? Because it was the reason why they were astonished and why they questioned Jesus's wisdom and power. Listen, they have grown up with Jesus. Jesus was in their midst since he was a baby boy. They knew him as a child and as a young man, as a teenager. They knew that he didn't have any religious training. He wasn't trained in the school of rabbi like other little boys did. Maybe their friends, maybe some of them who are sitting here who are being trained as rabbis and they're wondering, he didn't, where did he get all this wisdom? How could he teach as he teaches? They had obviously not seen any miracles performed by Jesus up to the point that he started his ministry, which really deals the blow to all of these other so-called gospels that describe Jesus as a teenager creating you know, doves out of sand and things like that. No, th- this is new miraculous occurrence here. None of these things happened before. And consider their questions now. Is this not the carpenter's son? They know Jesus very well. Evidently, Jesus took up his father's trade. Uh, In Mark 6, verse 3, they ask, is this not the carpenter? So here they're asked, is this not the carpenter's son? There they ask, is this not the carpenter? Everybody in town knew Joseph's family. Joseph, this word carpenter, literally more means like a builder. Like he, he's not only working with wood, but he's working with other building material. He's, he, he works in construction. He's like the handyman. He is the town's handyman. In fact, you get the sense, the way they framed this question, it may be that Joseph was the handyman. Right? If, if something broke in your house or if you needed a piece of furniture, you would call Joseph. Well, you wouldn't call him, but you would get a hold of him 
to come in and to repair whatever is broken. He was the handyman. He was the carpenter. Some of these people in synagogue probably had furniture that both Jesus and Joseph made for them. They knew that Jesus and Joseph, they were hard workers and they were very much respected in their community, but Jesus was respected as a handyman, not not as a Messiah. And that's what they're saying. Is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't he just a regular plumber? Didn't he just build my couch? Is not his mother Mary? Many commentators here conclude that by this time, this has taken place. Joseph may have died because he's no longer in the picture here. And this is why Mary is mentioned. Again, everybody knows each other. Their families, they played as boys together. And his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judah, are, are they not with us? Friends, Jesus had brothers and sisters. They were his half-brothers. Uh, after the virgin birth, Mary and Joseph evidently had other sons and they had other daughters. Now we know if we read on ahead, Acts chapter 114 says that his brothers and his mother became disciples of Christ after his resurrection. They believed in Jesus Christ. In fact, James here, this half-brother of Christ, he became a leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote one of the letters of the New Testament, James, that's his half-brother, And in AD 62, he died as a martyr for Christ. He believed in Christ. We don't know much about Joseph and Simon other than their names here. And then there's this Judas. Judas is the same man who authored the book of Jude. He is half-brother of Christ. Now, why Jude and not Judas? Well, it stands to reason that after Judas, Iscariot, right, gave up Christ, nobody wanted to go by Judas anymore. Jude was his name. Now, Jesus also had sisters. They were unnamed here, perhaps because they were also married off to another family by now. But remember here, I want us to get back into this context here, in this narrative here. Jesus' brothers, they're nothing. They're, They're unbelievers. In fact, John 3 or 6, 3 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And remember earlier on, just as we launched into the mysteries of the kingdom, at the very end of chapter 12, his mother and his brothers come in as Jesus is teaching and they come in, what? To get Jesus because they think he lost his mind. They don't believe anything Jesus is teaching at this moment. They didn't believe his claim. So the hometown crowd, they were essentially saying, we know his family and his own family, his own mother. I mean, mothers, they support their kids always, (laughs) always. And yet this mother is not supporting Jesus and what he is doing. Not even his family believes in him. And so what is the point then of these questions? Jesus, friends, is from a village family. And that is proved by the fact they're saying that his mother, his brothers, his sisters, they are all here. They may still be living here in this town. In his own hometown, right? The people of Nazareth, they could not accept that this man grew up with them, ate meals with them, attended the synagogue with them, had a name that was similar to them. Jesus was just like John back then. 
It was a very common name. Looked like them, and he could be something other than them. So they ask again, from where did this man get all this, these things? Where did he get all this power? Where did he get all this wisdom? They are unable to reconcile their knowledge of Jesus with what they are hearing and seeing. Surely this one cannot be God. This one cannot be the Messiah. They are way too familiar with him to be impressed by him. And so, beloved, these people thought they knew, but they only had shallow familiarity with him. They knew some things about him, but they did not know him. Their knowledge did not go beneath the sheer facts, just his family tree. And because they mistakenly thought that they knew him, they lacked a true sense of awe in the eternal Son of God who stood right there before them in their midst. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled just as it was fulfilled in Capernaum. Matthew 12, 14, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. Will not perceive. I don't know how many of you are struggling or have struggled with allergies. Um, you know, one of the remedies to treat allergies is they give you these allergy shots, regular injection over a period of three to five years, and they just give you a bit, a small dose of this shot. And each allergy shot, it, it contains this tiny amount of, of the specific, you know, substance that you're allergic against. And so, the whole point is to work your body to accept this and to react to it a certain way so that when you're again introduced to this uh, you know, huge amount of substance, your body would build immunity to it so that you don't respond to it anymore. That's why it's, it's a long treatment, three to five years. Well, it seems that, that over time, over these 30 years, this is exactly what happened to the people of Nazareth. They had been so familiar with him that they had built up this immunity against Jesus so that they're no longer responding to him when they hear new things from Jesus. And beloved, this is what happens to so many of us who are so close to Christ, so many Christians, and who are close to other Christians. They, they hear, right, just enough truth. They see just enough of the real talk. They, they hear just enough of the gospel. And over time, they become completely immune to it. They get familiar with some facts about Jesus, but, but they, they never really have Jesus. They never really surrender to Jesus by faith. Their familiarity prevents them from, like, receiving and contracting this full Jesus disease, they never get sick. You know, one night this week, we were preparing to put kids to sleep, and one of them asked this question that related to Trinity. You know, kids, they just become these great theologians when it's time to go to sleep. They don't want to sleep, so they ask you all these questions, and you begin to discuss them. Anyways, we were... We were discussing the topic of uh, Trinity and, and while discussing, later on I said something like this, well, you know, that is why we read the Bible, that's why we need to read scripture so that we can understand God better and to know him better. And one of the kids responded with this, like, oh, 
I already know all these stories. I already know all these stories. You know, one of the scariest things for me is to have my children know the stories without knowing God, right? Without knowing Christ, without coming to genuine faith in Christ. I already know it all. How many of you don't know all the major Old Testament stories or the New Testament stories? We know them all. But we need faith. They need faith, not familiarity. And, and, and I wonder how much, you know, our life demonstrates the reality as parents that we know Jesus and that we are not just familiar with him, but we know him. We believe in him so that our kids can perceive that and see that there's more than just a black text on the white page. There's power in knowing Christ. Friends, could this describe some of you? You may know many facts about the one true God. You may know about the God of scripture, but not know him. You may even come to a point where you're like, I love, you know, Jesus, Jesus. I don't have beef with Jesus, but you do not really know him. You do not really know the living God. It is entirely possible to be like the people of Nazareth, to appreciate the show, but do not recognize something special about the one who's performing these miracles and who's doing and who's speaking these truths that relate directly to God. Who doesn't like miracles? Who doesn't like the show? Everyone. But do you know him deeply and do you know him experientially? Have you placed your faith in him? One of the ways that you can check if you believe in Christ, if you own Christ, is that there is no fear, that there's no guilt, that there's no indifference, that there's no boredom with God. Because when he grabs a hold of you and you believe in him, you enjoy fellowship with him, and that is why you enjoy fellowship with one another. Shallow familiarity, friends, it must be replaced with deep knowledge of Christ, the kind of knowledge that leads you to see and acknowledge your sin and your need for him, the kind of knowledge that comes when you face different trials and, and difficulty as a believer and you return to your Savior because he hath suffered beyond all human explanation and he knows and he understands your pain the kind of deep knowledge of Christ that comforts you in, in pain, rebukes you of sin, encourages you in your weakness, and, and so on. That is knowing Christ. Beloved, we have to confess we do not know Christ as we should, but that is why we pursue him. Yet there may be some here who have no real saving knowledge of Christ, although they are very familiar with him. They grew up with Jesus. Faith, not familiarity, is what matters. Superficiality with Christ hinders faith in him. Don't get too familiar. As we looked at the reaction, they were merely amazed without any faith. And then we looked at the reason why because they were too familiar with Jesus and they became immune to him. I want us to consider the result. 
Consider the result now. Sooner or later, friends, being too familiar with Jesus results in being offended by him. Being too familiar with Jesus will result in being offended by him. And so we get this lesson. Being offended by Jesus reveals unbelief in him. Look at verse 57. After reasoning this way, verse 57, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. What was it that Jesus said that they were offended by? Well, when you read the Gospels, you will usually find that the time that Jesus offended people, it was what he said about himself that offended them the most. Not about each individual. Why are you offending me? No, usually, in most of these contexts, it's what he said about himself that caused greatest offense. Why? Because this claim of who Jesus is, it put him on a crossroads, fork in the road. They either had to believe what he said about himself, turn from their sin, trust him for who he is, or they had to refuse to believe and reject him. His own people did not receive him. He was presenting himself to be the Messiah, but they concluded that, nah, he's just, he's just a carpenter. He was speaking with authority and performing miracles empowered by God, but they continued to believe that he was no better than them. That power must be coming from someone else. And friends, the distance between their position and the Pharisaical position in chapter 12 is an inch. It was just a matter of time before they would basically repeat the same thing that the Pharisees said in, in Matthew chapter 12. He performed these things by the power of the devil. It cannot be from God. So they are offended and they took offense, which literally means they stumbled over him. He became a scandal for them. It's the same root that Jesus here uses in, in verse 41. Look at verse 41 in, uh, of chapter 13. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, stumbling blocks. All those who cause offense or cause um, scandal, basically. And so whatever Jesus said here offended them and caused them to stumble. They were jealous. They were upset. They didn't want one of their, you know, local boys pretending that he was the Messiah. And so as Paul puts later on in Matthew chapter 9, 32 and 33, he says this, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is the father saying, I have appointed my son to proclaim the truth. And anyone who refuses to believe this truth will stumble over it. And there's no recovery for him. But he who believes in him and will not stumble over Christ will not be disappointed. Remember just a couple of chapters back what Jesus told John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist 
gathers some of his disciples and he sends them to Jesus and he's like, go ask this one. Are you the one? Are you the expected one? I hear all these things, great things are happening, but look at me, I'm in prison still. I'm not being released. And isn't that part of the promise of of receiving the Messiah that he would set the captives free? Look at me, Are, are you the one or did I get it wrong? And remember at the end of his citation in Matthew chapter 11, verse six, Jesus says, go and tell him. Go and recount everything that you see and hear and tell him to put his faith in me. And in verse six of chapter 11, he says, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Tell John to continue to believe, not to stumble over me. John the Baptist, from all indications, responded positively to Jesus. The people of Nazareth, they do not. So we read in verse 57. He says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. A prophet is not without honor. Jesus kind of gives his own commentary on the situation at hand through a proverb. The meaning of the proverb is uh, most often a person is better received at home than anywhere else unless he's a person of importance like a prophet, in which case then the reverse is true. And with this proverb, Jesus is making an important claim. He literally applies the title of the prophet to himself. He is the prophet. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Listen, again, how important it is for us to understand the current situation, historical setting. They haven't had a prophet in 400 years until John the Baptist showed up. It wasn't like the old old and golden days where prophet after prophet, God was sending to them and, and proclaiming the truth to them. They haven't had a prophet in a very long time. And then John the Baptist shows up and he says, there's yet another prophet and he's coming right after me. And Jesus shows up and he says, you are rejecting a prophet, one who grew up in your midst and you don't even know it. You think you know me, but you do not. Why? They rejected him because he failed to conform to their expectations. You're not a village boy like all of us. You're claiming to be someone else. And the story concludes really with a a sad yet revealing commentary here in verse 58. Look what it says. Matthew finishes off this section and he says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. What was the driving force that moved people to reject Jesus? Gets very clear here. Unbelief. Why were they offended at him? Was it because they were jealous? Yes. Because they were proud? Yes. But ultimately, why? Because of their unbelief. Friends, in the end, people who reject Jesus do not do so because the arguments for Jesus or the arguments for faith aren't compelling enough. 
nor is it because the, the things the scripture says about him are not intellectually sound. We sound so simple. Christians sound so simple. No, when you really get down to it, people who hear the truth about Jesus reject it because of their unbelieving hearts. That's it. So long as someone who has said pridefully themselves to go in their own sinful way, when they hear, they will not believe, nor will they be in awe of the testimony that God is giving about his son. Hard heart. Hard heart. And because of this, because of their unbelief, they miss out on his blessing. And he did not do any miracles there. Their unbelief resulted in them missing out on his kingdom blessing. In other words, he goes on and he says, I am the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. And then what does he do to support his claims? He starts performing miracles that are always attributed to the expected one, the Messiah, as we looked throughout Matthew. And here he says, I'm the Messiah, and they don't respond properly, and they miss out on the blessing, on seeing people healed, on seeing people restored, the power of his coming kingdom going through and affecting the kingdom of Satan. They miss out on that. Why? Because Jesus is not a mere miracle worker. Jesus would be leading people astray if he just came in and met their felt needs. It is not as though their lack of faith hindered Christ or somehow hampered his power to perform miracles because that's what some people, that's how some interpret this. In fact, you have this sort of interpretation in, in this uh, faith movement and in, in health, wealth, and prosperity and saying that here comes this healer and he's going to heal all your, all your diseases. You just come to church and he'll pray over you and everything will be healed. And, and when they don't, then they blame your faith and they say your faith hindered God from acting and from performing this miracle. That's not what's going on here. That, those are uh, sham preachers and miracle workers. What is going on here is Jesus saying, I will not because I'm not going to put on the show. He chose not to extend his kingdom blessing upon his own hometown because of their unbelief. And, and really the principle here is, is sort of found in this chapter. Matthew 13, look with me at verse 12. Jesus says to his disciples in explaining why he is speaking to some in parables and to them he's given the explanation. He says in verse 12, for whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. They, friends, were given truth about this Messiah, about his kingdom, yet they failed to respond, so even the miracles performed in other places were not performed in their place because they failed to respond to what they heard. It was taken away from them. So as we come to an end here, I just want to review Nazareth's reaction reveals that being amazed by Jesus doesn't imply you have faith in him. The reason for such reaction reveals that being familiar, being too familiar, having this shallow familiarity with Jesus oftentimes hinders faith in him. And finally, the result reveals that being offended by Jesus 
is due to unbelief in him. Faith in Christ, not familiarity with him, allows you to experience his kingdom blessing. Those of us who have been around Jesus for a very long time, remember this. Few things, few things are more dangerous than just being too familiar and bored with Jesus Christ. We, we, we need to continue to be amazed at Christ. Grow in our understanding and knowledge. We, we cannot stop believing in him. When Jesus becomes commonplace, and friends, we are always in danger of him becoming commonplace because our focus our focus here from this pulpit, our focus in counseling, our focus in discipleship is to, to put all the spotlight on Jesus Christ. To encourage you to know that you are satisfied in Christ alone. That he is ultimately the solution to our sin problem and our only satisfaction in life. And then we work out all the particulars in our marriage problems, in our family, in our singleness, and whatever other issue, we find out how can Christ satisfy this need because he always does. And so when you put so much spotlight and focus on Jesus so often, we just kind of become immune to Jesus because it's Jesus this, Jesus that, gospel this, gospel that. But, friends, we cannot lose this sense of awe. The past of who we were, our understanding of the present, who Christ made us to be, and also our purpose for the future. We continually need to root our thinking in Christ, in the gospel. And when we do, when when Christ does become just all too familiar, then then that means we're weak, weak in faith. We need to grow. Beloved, let us continue to get into the word of God to be amazed at Jesus, which will drive us to faith and drive us to obedience and the enjoyment of all the blessings that we come to know in him. And apart from him, as we read, there are no pleasures, no blessings. We don't know him as we should. But those of us who know him and those of us who have this saving knowledge. What a joy, right? What a privilege it is to daily and weekly together, corporately as we gather, to dive into the word of God and pray, Lord, we want to know you. And we want to know how the gospel affects what I'm going through today. To not be shaken, but be steadfast in my faith and know that you will hold me fast as we were singing. It is all about Christ. It is all about who he is for us. May we have this renewed passion to study him, to live for him and to enjoy him. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we confess, I confess, that so often he's just all too familiar and we lose this sense of awe. We lose this sense of awe of you and of your son. 
Help us to recover that. Daily, weekly. Maybe there's someone here who is in just this complete funk right now. I, I pray, Lord, that you would restore that soul, lead him, lead him to the waters where, where he can be satisfied with Jesus. Renew their faith. Help us never become too familiar that we stop caring or we stop exploring more and more the depths. As Paul prayed for many of his churches, he wanted them to grow in the knowledge. Grow in the knowledge. Help us to do that. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.